another pot of coffee is brewing and I am going to apologize now for the fact that I occasionally might sound as though I am some low rent Dalek from the 1970s. Unfortunately, I have been suffering for over two weeks now, which has meant no coffee, but plenty of honey, lemon and ginger tea. I'm getting kind of sick of it and I think I might start to look a bit like a lemon in some future place. I have no idea when. Luckily, my laptop was returned at the beginning of the week before last. And that means that though I should probably still be resting, I am finally able to record the second episode in Chris Evans' season. Despite it only having lasted three weeks, well, not even that, if I'm honest, it will be ending on a grand finale this coming Thursday that is not Marvel-related in any way, even loosely. So go and get yourself some popcorn, a giant Coke that will hopefully not have you headed to the bathroom every five minutes, and let's get started. I have already said I am taking a look at another film on Chris Evans IMDb page and like the first episode in this mini season it is based on another graphic novel adapted to the big screen by a director who has since gone on to win a best picture Oscar it's another film that shows something of a grittier and darker side to the man who is usually associated with roles that are all about the hero that said, he is still something of a hero in this one, but it's a much darker film overall. Unlike Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, where his role as Lucas Lee was definitely more of a quickly defeated side villain, Evans has a lead role in 2013's rather dystopian Snowpiercer. It's 2031. The entire world is frozen after a failed experiment to reverse the damage caused by global warming. However, those aboard the Snowpiercer, a train travelling around the globe through ice and snow, have survived for 17 years. They have created their own economy and built on an already failing class system. A group of lower class citizens who have been existing at the back of the train for all this time, in squalor, are determined to get to the front of the train and spread the wealth more equally. Led by Curtis Everett, the group battle their way through each carriage, discovering the surprising and shocking with every step. A revolution is underway, but who is going to win? I don't know why, but for some reason, I really had to force myself to watch this film, even though I have seen it before several times and I actually like it. The credits are overlaid with news broadcasts about global warming and the disaster that, has, that it has caused. The release of a chemical called CW7 that is meant to be the saviour of the world, bringing temperatures down to manageable levels and then we see the destruction it has wrought, with temperatures reduced to a level that make things impossible. It's almost like a scene from the day after tomorrow, until we see the train. We are clearly in the back carriages of the train, where the poor are being counted. Curtis refuses to sit until he is forced. It's clear he has a plan. They are being fed disgusting slabs of something that looks like black jelly. And seriously, oh, it's just disgusting. 
Everything in the tale of the train is dark and gloomy, as though to reflect the horror that is inflicted on them. Edgar, played by Jamie Bell, has an oddly Irish accent and is obsessed with food, especially steak. But as Curtis tells him, it's better to forget than to remember something he's not going to have again. For some reason, they are trying to negotiate with a precocious five-year-old called Timmy. They want his protein bar. As Curtis moves through the carriage, it's clear that people look up to him. Everyone keeps on asking him if it's time. I'm guessing here that they have a plan. And it turns out that the protein bar they obtained from Timmy was part of that plan. It contains a message that is going to help them. There is a prisoner they need to help escape so that they can get to the front of the train. The plan is for them to control the engine because without it, they will lose whatever revolution they have planned. What I find really strange here is the fact that everyone is talking about what is happening on the train as if it's the only thing they've ever known. For some, this will definitely be the case, like for Timmy. But for others, like Gilliam, Curtis, and maybe even Edgar, though later on we discover that not to be the case, they were alive when the CW7 was released into the atmosphere. They were sentient when they boarded the train, and they remember what things were like before all of this happened. They are still planning when all the children are gathered up by guards, apparently for a medical check. And when a woman from the front of the train arrives and measures little Timmy, they take joy in taking him away from his family. As a way of punishment for the riot that ensues, they stick a man's arm out of the train carriage, and then Mason arrived, played by Tilda Swinton. She is disappointed in the chaos that was caused. She is preaching order, telling them that they need to maintain this so that things run smoothly and the train continues to protect them from the disaster that is outside of their purview. Provided by the sacred engine and Mr Wilford. Though to be honest, every single time they say his name and I was listening all the way through, every single time they say Wilford, it sounds as though they're saying Wilfred. I don't know if that was intentional or what, but it really did sound bizarre. Nearly as bizarre as Edgar's uncalled for Irish accent. Everything is provided by the engine of the train. Mason is preaching about class and that people need to know their place. It's very telling that when Gilliam stands up and walks past Mason, she tells her guard to put that useless gun away. Curtis is paying attention he knows that the guns are useless. He is sure that this is because they have no more bullets. Gilliam tells him to wait until they have received the next letter from their source. But it seems as though Curtis is losing patience. Kind of understandable, to be honest. I think I would be too. All of these people live in fear. They don't know when their child could be the next one taken. If they will be the next person to lose a limb because of an assumed rule-breaking. Curtis is the man with a plan. No pun intended. <laughs> I realised as I wrote this, okay, but he's not Captain America in this. His assumption is proved right when he confronts a guard and forces him to pull the trigger at his head. It's clear that desperation is driving them because the protein bars are no way enough to give any of them the energy to do what they manage when they cause an outright riot. 
They've made it to the prison carriage and the man they need to free in order to give their plan a chance of success. Nam Goong Minsu, the man who designed the train's security. He is a drug addict and initially seems as though he will be little to no help. But Curtis is willing to barter, willing to give him the drugs he is addicted to in exchange for opening the security doors between them and the front. It appears that Nam Goong is not above fighting to get away from these men, but he is also only going so far to rescue his daughter, who was also locked away. They have all lived in darkness for so long that when they get through the prison carriage and into one with windows that is completely abandoned, they are almost blinded by the light that shines through them. Gilliam is disappointed and upset to see that everything outside is still dead. The next carriage is empty apart from one of the previously abducted residents of the rear carriages, Paul. He is in charge of producing the protein bars, which Curtis discovers, to his disgust, are made from cockroaches. Yes, it is gross, but people have eaten ants, scorpions and other insects, so while it's rather un... It's rather just distasteful to witness. They are a high source of protein and far better than the food in Soylent Green, right? (laughs) If you haven't seen Soylent Green, read a spoiler if you've got a bit of a squeamish stomach. While confronting Paul about the cockroaches in the protein bars, Curtis finds a note pellet that contains instructions for them to get to the water carriage. Edgar, at this point, is increasingly, incredibly aggressive His emotions are going to cause him far more problems if he's not careful. He is just so desperate to get to the front of the train that he doesn't care what happens to get there. It turns out that Curtis was 17 when he got on the train, as we discover when he has a discussion with Namgung's daughter, Yuna. He tells her that he chooses not to remember what things were like before because it would make it too difficult to go on. It was bound to happen on their journey through the train, a carriage full of people with axes. As the rebels watch, they use their weapons to gut a fish. In Bong's own words, when the fish is first introduced, it's as a threat, an omen of the violence to come. The masked soldiers use their axes to cut it open and spread the blood on their blades. What follows is a bloody battle in which you really get to see the desperation driving the people from the rear of the train to get to the front. It appears that despite the fact they're in the middle of a battle to the death, they still celebrate the passing of another year on the train, at least by saying Happy New Year as they pass over Yekaterina Bridge in the Ural Mountains of Russia. But the peace will soon pass and battle quickly recommences. There is silence on the train as it forces through a wall of ice and everyone has to brace for impact. It's clear their journey is precarious and it's only when safe passage is declared that they start again. Well, until Mason shows up. She seems to believe that the people should be grateful for their abominable treatment. You just know that the moment night vision goggles are on, the rebels are in trouble. The entire battle is fought in darkness and it's brutal, but Curtis is nowhere to be seen. He is waiting for the light to return until he remembers the matches that were stolen and we have a relay with a match-lit torch. 
This entire scene is fought only with the light of these torches. No other light was used, giving it a considerable amount of authenticity. Mason is hit with a blade to the back of the leg by Gilliam's guard, Gray, played by Luke Pasqualino, and he is deadly accurate. However, Curtis discovers that he has a choice. He can either save Edgar or get Mason. But this is a fight for the greater good, and he knows what must be done. As they reach the light at the end of the tunnel, both literally and figuratively, Mason is being held with an axe at her throat, and Edgar is dead on the floor. Some of these deaths are rather grotesque to witness, but it could be argued that they were necessary. Gilliam calls for the survivors to wash in the water supply section that they have just reached, while Curtis assesses and mourns their losses. Meanwhile, Mason is questioned by Tanya. She wants to find her son. She is only too happy to throw Wilford under a bus, however. Apparently, it turns out he likes children, and that can be taken one of two ways, neither of which is actually that great. Mason knows a lot about their plans. She tells Curtis she knows the train and that she can take him to Wilford. She would happily sell anyone out in order to survive. In an effort to show that she is sincere, she reveals herself to him by removing her teeth. Is Curtis actually any better than anyone else at this point? They have lost so many, including Edgar. Everyone is tired, drained and devastated by the losses they have experienced. But they have come so far, can they really turn back at this point? Is Curtis self-sacrificing? He knows that he can make it with Mason as his hostage. Gilliam tells him that the, he is their leader and he will have to accept that responsibility. He feels a lot of guilt about everything that has happened. Curtis takes Mason and they go through to the next carriage full of beauty, flowers, fruits, water, calming music and an innocuous woman sitting at the end, knitting. The next carriage is another full of fish and water, like an aquarium. It's where they source the sushi. During this journey through the train, they are truly experiencing how the other half live, and it's devastating to see how different it is, how they are being treated like animals for no other reason than they are considered lesser than those who inhabit the front carriages of the train. We have another carriage that is nothing but frozen meat and then one full of spoilt schoolchildren who are awful and have an absolutely horrific opinion of the people at the back of the train. Their teacher is a pregnant, sweet-spoken woman played by Alison Pill. The children she teaches are being brought up with the belief that Wilford is their saviour. It's all propaganda and a way to maintain order. As they watch... Gilliam is executed, and Curtis is forced to realise that he has to take charge. He grabs a gun and shoots Mason in the head in the middle of the classroom. What had once been an army of rebels is now reduced to Curtis, Tanya, Namgung, Yuna and Grey. Once past the classroom, it's nothing but privilege everywhere. Steam rooms, jacuzzis, an exclusive club where people relive the 1920s. In the steam rooms, their numbers are reduced again. Tanya is shot. 
Grey is stabbed in a scene that is both long and agonisingly punctuated with frightening sounds of skin and flesh giving way and final breaths. And the assassin is seemingly gone. Drugs and debauchery are the name of the game in the next carriage where people are living it up like it's 1999. Champagne and party drugs. But Curtis has just one goal in mind. He wants to find Wilford. Finally, he has reached the end of the line. Curtis is sitting with Namgung, smoking the last ever cigarette and telling him how bad things were in the tail section of the train. All this time, Curtis has been torturing himself for the things that they were forced to do in the first months. They ate the week in order to survive, and it's something he has to live with for the rest of his life. The front carriage passengers drove the passengers in the tail of the train to live down to the expectations that they already had of them. Curtis feels weak because he was unable to make the same sacrifice that others had made, parts of their body to save the lives of the weak and those unable to defend themselves. Namgung thinks that there is hope. He knows that the snow is starting to melt, that the end is in sight. It turns out that he has planned for years to blow the gate and get to Wilford. However, there is no need for that. Wilford has every intention of seeing Curtis. He has his own plans. Wilford wants Curtis to know that there are reasons for everything, that natural selection isn't going to work on the train. He is the man calling all the shots. He was working with Gilliam. The plan for the uprising was not to get Curtis to the front of the train, but to reduce the number of people living in the tail end. But the losses were much higher than expected, and they got far further than he thought they would ever be possibly able to reach. Curtis is devastated. He has been betrayed by the man he trusted. For Wilford, the engine is all that matters. She is his pride and joy, his companion and his greatest accomplishment. As Curtis stands in the bowels of the engine, you can see the devastation, the exhaustion, the despair in his eyes, but it's almost completely unapproachable at the same time. He has made it to his destination, but lost so much in the process. Wilford had another purpose. He wants Curtis to take his place, to tend the engines and continue his work. He believes that he is the answer, the saviour of humanity, and he needs someone to continue his mission. Just as you think that Curtis may be turning and actually taking Wilford up on his offer, Yona shows Curtis the truth, that the engine is made up of children the ones taken from the tail section of the train. For Wilford, they are nothing but fuel and train fodder. In saving Timmy, Curtis has sacrificed his arm, and perhaps now some of his guilt can be eased. As the door to the outside world is blown open and the train comes to a grinding halt, pushed off the tracks by an avalanche, we watch as carriages are destroyed. Out of an upturned car... Yona and Timmy emerge, alone but for each other and a polar bear climbing a mountain ridge in the distance. The film is based on the French graphic novel series Le Transpersonage by Jacques Loeb and Jean-Marc Rochette. Sorry for the French accent. Originally published in 1982, it is defined as post-apocalyptic climate fiction and if you've seen it, then you'll know that 
this description is pretty accurate. The idea for Snowpiercer originally took root in 2005 when Bong Joon-ho discovered the graphic novels in a bookstore and found them fascinating. Kind of understandable if they're anything like the film. It was another five years before the screenplay for the film would be completed. And two years later, further rewrites would be carried out by Kelly Masterson. 2012 was a big year for Snowpiercer, with casting starting in January. Though Evans was already heavily involved in multiple projects, including the first Avengers film, Avengers Assemble, he requested an audition, beating out actors like Jake Gyllenhaal for the role. Playing Curtis was very different, a solo lead in a film harsher and far more dystopian than any other project he had previously been involved with. Snowpiercer is the reason why Steve Rogers is covering his face with his hand during the end credit scene in Avengers Assemble. He had grown out a thick beard for the role of Curtis Everett, and shaving it would have caused continuity issues for that particular role. And it seems that the beard wasn't the only thing that Evans needed for this role, with the costume designer for Snowpiercer having to find ways to make him look far less muscular to play the role of a man who'd been living on protein bars and in a place where the nearest gym is not an option for the last 17 years of his life. Apparently, Bong said that for the role of Curtis, hiding Evan's muscular physique was the most difficult thing about working with the actor, explaining... He's supposed to be in the poor tail section for 17 years, eating only protein blocks, and it was tricky to hide all of that muscle mass with costume and makeup. The really sad thing about Snowpiercer is that few got the opportunity to see it on the big screen due to the pariah of cinema himself, Harvey Weinstein. It turns out that Weinstein wanted to cut nearly 25 minutes from the film as he believed it wouldn't work well for audiences. The film then had a limited release in just 150 cinemas across the US and never even got to the cinemas in the UK. In fact, it wasn't released on these shores until 2018 when it it was made available on Amazon Prime Video. The budget for this film was $40 million and considering the fact that it did have such a limited release, it didn't do too badly making $86.8 million at the box office, which, when you can think about it, it means it made back its budget and a further $46.8 million. It was definitely not Evan's biggest box office bomb. That award goes to 2006's London, nor, what it, nor was it his biggest hit, as we well know. That honour is firmly in the hands of 2019's Avengers Endgame. It sits somewhere nicely in the middle. I have to be honest, I hadn't checked out the Rotten Tomatoes score on Snowpiercer before and wasn't sure what to expect. Despite not having made a massive wave or any real kind of wave at the box office, it certainly seems to have made a positive impression on a considerable number of reviewers if the 94% critic score is anything to go by. David Sims from The Atlantic said, The joy of Snowpiercer is twofold. Watching the sets change and get more and more elaborate as the cars get richer and richer is fantastic. And all the money of this $40 million mini epic has clearly been devoted to making these carriages as original as possible. 
the action is crunching, ear-splittingly loud, and mostly very brutal, but it's always well-staged, and somehow Bong manages to change up his set pieces, even though they're all taking place in, you know, a train. Evans is a nice brooding pair of shoulders to rest things on, but the joy of Snowpiercer's ensemble is the weirdos around him, particularly Swinton's horrible dime store, Renter Stalin, and Song's hypnotized, drug-sniffing iconoclast. We build to a showdown at the front of the train with another recognizable actor who specializes in this sort of monologuing, who thinks himself as miserable in his opulent isolation as those at the back. Bong's point that our stratifications are as much about isolating social classes from the others as they are about inequality is well taken. He's making no bounds about drawing our eyes straight to his point, which is both refreshing and jarring. And his wacky mix of tones is tiresome at times, refreshing at others. One jaunt inside at the schoolroom, led by a cracked-out Alison Pill, is both. Snowpiercer is nothing close to a perfect experience, but it's a thousand times more memorable than most experiences you'll have this summer at the cinema. However, as with everything, everyone has an opinion and not all of them match. So despite the fact that Snowpiercer does indeed have a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes, I'll say that again, 94%, there are a few critics out there who didn't like it, including Chuck Bowen from Slant. He definitely didn't appreciate the direction or the cinematography. His review is quite lengthy, however, so I have reduced the point down to its bare and negative bones. The film has enough thematic resonance for three George A. Romero movies, but Romero, despite his reputation as a hippie purveyor of social protest horror films, played fair. He allowed his conservative bad guys to make occasional sense and his liberal heroes to succumb to periodic foolishness. Snowpiercer preaches resolutely to the choir and cinephiles in sync with the film's politics may still blanch at how snugly their interests are courted. Though they smite plenty of their enemies, the exploited are condescendingly and unironically positioned by Bong as saints, who are only looking for their children. And so the anarchy is largely drained of its potential sting or tension. As in most red meat movies of right or left ideology, the film's massive carnage isn't informed with much sense of ambiguity of revulsion, which reduces it to yet another preachy, matrixy sci-fi movie in which people stand around in bad outfits sounding out against the man in fashions you're signaled to congratulate yourself for seconding. Snowpiercer concludes on an irritatingly reassuring high note that suggests, per usual, that killing one bad man will allow all of falsely indoctrinated society to magically correct itself. The film could be a conservative parody of naive liberal piety if conservatives were known to exhibit a sense of humour. Obviously, Chuck didn't like Snowpiercer, but as with anything, don't let one review make your decisions for you. I have to be honest, I wasn't sure what to think about Snowpiercer when I first saw it come up on Prime, probably in 2018 when it was originally released. But I personally like a bit of dystopia in my entertainment, not all the time, but who doesn't like a bit of balance? So, did I like the film? This isn't the sort of film that you sit and watch on a Sunday afternoon with the family. In fact, it's the sort of film I would recommend you watch with beer and snacks. If you love a film that isn't all blood and gore but has elements of darkness, bitter heroes, 
and somewhat stereotypical villains, then this is one to watch. I have already said that I wasn't sure what to expect when I saw this film for the first time, but I was pleasantly surprised. Chris Evans gets to use his acting chops and play the good guy, but at the same time, he has to be nasty with it. This is no Captain America. Will I watch it again? Unlike Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, which I know for a fact is the favourite of a number of my listeners, you know who you are, this is one I do own on DVD. Okay, so since 2018, it has appeared on streaming services in the UK. However, the visits it make are incredibly brief. A perfect example being that less than a month ago, this was on Amazon Prime as a new arrival. And it's already gone. Until this weekend, I hadn't watched it for a while, but it is definitely a film that I would say I appreciate. I don't think that enjoy is the right word for it, though. Would I recommend it? In the scheme of things, Snowpiercer isn't actually old, having only really made it to the UK in the last four years, and having enjoyed a somewhat limited cinematic release in 2013. So I do think that it's one you should at least see once if you've not experienced it before. Of course, it totally depends on the sort of films that you enjoy watching, but this isn't so horrific that it would give you nightmares. However, I wouldn't recommend watching it with your five-year-old, but then I wouldn't recommend you watch The Hunger Games with them either. It has a great cast, including John Hurt, Tilda Swinton, Jamie Bell, Octavia Spencer, Alison Pill, and Kang Ho Song, who also starred in Bong's Oscar-winning Parasite. So, how are things in the coffee household this week? It was bound to happen at some point. I have been really lucky up until now, but the Saturday before last, I started to feel unwell. I started to feel peculiar (laughs) in the chemist when I was picking up my prescriptions, but I put it down to a hot flush. Women of a certain age do get them, you know. Anyway, it turns out that instead of being a hot flush, which, while inconvenient and uncomfortable, passes relatively speedily, it turns out that this was the first sign I was going to get hit with over two weeks of pain and uselessness. I went to bed relatively early on the Saturday night, as neither my laptop nor my new phone had been delivered. This was not much of a disappointment, I stayed in bed as long as I could on Sunday, despite the fact that my throat was starting to feel as though it had been sandpapered, and then Monday arrived. I'm always really reluctant to take time off work, even when it's booked holiday. But Monday morning, I woke up, and not only did I feel as though my head was swimming, but the sandpaper had been upgraded to barbed wire. No work for me. I could barely function as a human being doing nothing. There was no way I was going to be able to focus on anything. Like most people, I am my own worst enemy when I'm ill. I don't have the energy to do anything, but I can't just sit and do nothing. I read a couple of books, finished watching the entirety of Leverage, plus Leverage Redemption, and then started re-watching Eureka from the beginning. Nothing that actually needs attention is being watched at this moment in time, because I really can't concentrate properly, and I'm getting tired incredibly quickly but the sound is there at least to keep me company. 
So what exactly am I trying to say about my mental health here? There is a point, I promise. Whenever I get ill, no matter the job I am doing, I start to worry that the person I am working for, the people I am working with, are going to realise that I'm useless at what I do. I got sent home virtually on Friday afternoon because I went back to work on Wednesday. No voice, coughing up blood. Yes, probably TMI and definitely gross. And still feeling incredibly lightheaded and unstable on my feet. It was too early. My manager put up with it for a few days because she can't tell me that I am ill. However, Friday afternoon she called and told me to take until I was better and go back to bed. I have been told to rest, relax and recuperate. But after almost six years of working for businesses where they dock pay when you're unwell, so you get used to going in, it has become something of a habit. In my old workplace, they would feign concern for your physical and mental health, and then if you did take time off, they would make you feel as though you'd committed a criminal offence for being ill. I reached the stage where it was easier to work through it than to get a few days needed to recover in bed. That was never good for physical or mental health, but when choosing between paying my bills and taking time off to recover from a virus that has me feeling incredibly unwell... There is really no question which one takes priority. Definitely the bills. Okay, I admit it, I got a little bit sidetracked. Ultimately, the fact that my manager told me not only to go home and rest, but not to come back until I was better set alarm bells ringing. Have I screwed up my future with the company by getting a virus that is not COVID? I tested. I was negative all four times. Now it's all I can think about and instead of focusing on getting better, I became concerned that I was going to find that come my six-month review, my contract would be cut short rather than extended beyond the year. And there it is, paranoia in action. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family And please post a star rating on GoodPods, Spotify or Podchaser. You can follow me on Twitter at need underscore three underscore mugs and on Instagram at notbeforecoffeepodcast. Or you can check out my website, notbeforecoffee.co.uk. Well, at this point, I need another cup of honey and lemon as I really should be drinking way more than I am. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time... This is me saying farewell.